Okay, welcome back everyone. Uh, it's so good to see you all. I hope you all had a super enjoyable and successful Pesach. Uh, today we have the privilege of having with us Rabbi Chaim Angel for a much requested shiur on the topic of understanding biblical miracles. We'll be exploring different approaches from Chachamim, such as Rav Sad Yagaon, Rav Bag, Haran Bam, and Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi. About our speaker, Rabbi Chaim Angel is the National Scholar of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. Rabbi Angel has taught advanced biblical courses at Yeshiva University since 1996, lectures widely throughout North America, and consults Yeshivot worldwide on developing curricula. He has authored or edited 19 books and has published over 130 scholarly articles. Rabbi Angel's scholarship focuses on the interaction between traditional and academic approaches to Bible study. He is editor of Conversations, the journal of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. In Chabura News, uh, we are about to put out our book on Shavuot, uh, so stay tuned um, about, uh, with that, and it will be out very soon. Um, and uh, with that, uh, thank you all um, who are here with us, and thank you all who are going to be listening after. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Angel, for your time and wisdom. It's always a, a pleasure to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Okay, thank you so much. I, again, want to thank you and thank the Chabura for putting together, I mean, Yesh Me'ayin, uh, over the last few years, have put together a remarkable array of speakers, and, and the publications have been most welcome. I've been enjoying them myself, reviewing them for the Institute website, and look forward to seeing the Shavuot edition once it is out. Thank you all for coming also. Now that we're done with Pesach, where we celebrate God's most overt intervention in history uh, for all of us, it's good to take a step back to think about what a miracle is, because after all, that's something which affects not only Egypt, but it affects our understanding of Tanakh in general. It happens that, they didn't teach me this as a kid, uh, that there's a rather forceful debate, sometimes passions run pretty high, as to what a miracle should be. And I guess if you want to break up the the classical medieval debates into a sentence, because who doesn't want to do that in an hour-long shiur, you break it up into two basic camps. One camp views a miracle the way that I think most people, the way that when I lived in New York City, uh, the way that I used to test all theological premises is, if I'm boarding a bus and there's a person right behind me about to board the same bus, can I explain this idea before we both get on the bus? Well, that's usually, that was my litmus test. Now I'm in Teenex, so it's a little different, but I try my best to, uh, to come up with some version of that. If you had to get on a bus and, and be able to summarize one side of this debate in a nutshell, you would say it's the Z theory, where basically the world is going on as it is, then there's a problem, God needs to get involved, and so using his almighty powers intervenes on the spot using those powers to change either the natural order or at minimum to make an, an active change that God did something directly to change the outcome. I think that's what most people boarding that bus would think a miracle is. A miracle is something that, it's not just that it's unanticipated, but it's basically the impossible happening because God is involved. So this view is championed by many, including notably people like Rashi and Ramban, Nachmanides. Uh, they tend to follow that sort of view and prefer to see God's hand in the Torah and all the Tanakh as Direct intervention with the power of Okay, so that's one side. Then there's a whole nother side. Uh, these are the ones that they didn't teach us. We, I learned their names in, in school, but I didn't realize that they had such a vehemently different position than the first one. They actually find it uncomfortable that God has to keep on changing nature. They would prefer to imagine that God created things right the first time, 
and that everything simply falls into place according to God's natural order. Uh, typically speaking, the more philosophically inclined rabbis were the ones who took this sort of approach, notably Rambam, Maimonides, and Ralbag, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, but many others also. I have a couple of sources here on, on the screen. So we'll start with source number one, Ralbag. This is again Rabbi Levi ben Gershon living in 14th century Provence, southern France, one of the great medieval philosophers. He just says it like this, when God wishes to, he's talking about the flood story. When God wishes to perform miracles, he does so via causes that are the most appropriate according to natural laws. As far as Ralbag is concerned, that's what a miracle is. God is using the laws of nature to make something happen. This is because the natural order of existence was set by God in the most perfect way possible. And when necessity due to providence requires a change from this order, it is appropriate that God should divert from this as little as possible. So as far as he is concerned, it's embarrassing if God has to keep on fixing things. So you could agree, disagree with his philosophical stance, but needless yeah. to say, if this, if this is your philosophical stance, you better believe it's going to affect how you learn Tanakh. Uh, yeah, if you're not already on mute, please, please do so. So that way, and, and obviously if you wish to chime in, you could do so via the chat, which is probably the best way to get my attention in the first place. Or at some point, we can just have questions and answers, and both of those work fine. Touch also, Rabbi, apologies. apologies. Can the rabbi maybe raise his, uh, the volume a little bit? My volume is pretty, hold on. Let's see what I got over here. Ah, that's not the right thing. I'm just going to wear my headphones. If, if you don't hear me well, I'm going to do something about it. Okay, how is it now? Better. Okay, so I'm gonna to go to that and we're gonna go over to Rambam. Rambam says that I, in source number two, I try to reconcile the Torah and reason and wherever possible, consider all things as of the natural order. Only when something is explicitly identified as a miracle and reinterpretation of it cannot be accommodated, only then I feel forced to grant that this is a miracle. So Rambam before Ralbag expresses the same bias, which is it's much better if you read all of the stories in Tanakh as natural, and only when you're utterly forced by the text to think otherwise do you do so. Rambam makes a general point in, in other writings of his that a natural event is considered a miracle when a few things happen. Most notably, a prophet needs to forecast the miracle. So if Moshe says, the sea is about to split, that's miraculous. And also if it's an exceedingly unusual event meaning even if it follows the, the natural order, it's still unusual. So it's prophetically predicted, and it's unusual. It's a very large event. I'll just add to that, it also has to do with the timing. If the sea splits and God predicts it, it tells Moshe that it's going to split, it's not a, it, the timing was very good. It split right before the Israelites crossed, and it closed onto the Egyptians so the Egyptians would drown. So you have to add that component to what Rambam is saying, but that's basically the gist of it. Rambam thinks that even some great event like the splitting of the Red Sea is best explained in accordance with the laws of nature, even if it is a rare event. Okay, so that's how he does it. So those are the two basic sides of the debate. You have the view, which is that God is constantly intervening through Tanakh directly, and you have the natural view, which is 
Miracles are great natural events that happen at a perfectly timed moment where God tells a prophet that it's going to happen, and it's, and it's large. It's a big event. Then you have this middle position, which is what I'm most sympathetic to, which is that when you want to learn Tanakh, it's always better if you work from the text outward than from the idea inward. It's impossible to really do that, by the way, but you have to try. Both of these two views really don't try so hard. Both of these views have preconceived notions. Basically, they both agree with the following premise. God is incredible. And they're just debating over what does it mean? So according to Rashi and Ramban, it's more incredible if God intervenes all the time. Whereas for Rambam and Ralbag, it's more incredible if God just did it right the first time. That's, that's, it's a philosophical debate. Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kasti, who lived in 14th century Provence also, I think gives a, an approach to us that I personally follow to the de degree that's possible. I mean, it's impossible to be unbiased, but at least to make an effort to, what does the text really say? What are the fair parameters of how one could view this text? And then the rest is how you want to see how a miracle works. So Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kasti, living in the 14th century, has heard enough of both sides by now to say, I do not approve of the predilection of the masses of our contemporaries to locate miracles in scripture as often as they can, to the extent that they seize any opportunity to interpret a text supernaturally. So he doesn't like the position. He doesn't like the idea of going through the entire Tanakh and seeing God inter intervening everywhere. Ironically, this does not reinforce the existence of miracles, but weakens it since in many cases they miss the real intent of the verses. Sometimes there's absolutely no reason to read something supernaturally. The conduct of some of our co-religionists who think highly of themselves, he doesn't like, even though he's a philosopher too, he doesn't like those who start with the philosophy and then superimpose it onto the text. It is likewise erroneous if they try to reconcile everything in scripture with nature. It says you can't do that either. There are some miracles in Tanakh that it's very difficult to explain naturalistically, even today, let alone in the medieval period. I prefer to interpret each text independently, truthfully, and contextually. So honestly, I think that that is the best possible stance for an interpreter. That's certainly the view that I would try to encourage, which is let's hear what the text actually says and don't come in with a preconceived notion. And then at the end of the day, odds are high, you'll still be able to decide if you prefer the approach or God works through nature approach, and you'll still be happy, but at least don't, don't detract from what the text itself is trying to do. So this shiur, very briefly, will survey a couple of my favorite examples, but there are so many others, obviously. When you go through Tanakh, there are many, many, many miracles. And so our parshanim have to decide the parameters of how to go about reading the text. So here's one of them in source number four. Whatever happened to Mrs. Lot anyway? You know, God destroys Sodom, and Lot, his wife, and his two single daughters are running for their lives, and the angel of destruction gives them explicit orders not to look behind them. So we'll read the Hebrew, and then we have the English right underneath it in source number four. God rains fire and brimstone onto Sodom and Amorah. God overturned, overthrew those cities. He completely obliterated everything. Lot's wife looked behind her. Okay, so that's the part that matters. Well, what just happened today? The simplest reading is probably what the JPS, which is what I have as the translation over here, says. Lot's wife looked back, and she thereupon turned into a pillar of salt. 
meaning she was a human being until five minutes ago, and now she's a table season, just a very large quantity of it. Right, that she supernaturally transformed her body makeup was whatever we're made up, all the different components that we're normally made up, and now she's just a great big block of salt. Okay, so the question is, what do you do with that? So according to the point of view, that's easy. God turned her into salt. You have, there's, no, there's no further inquiry that is required. That happens to be the view of the Talmud. There's actually a blessing that we recite upon seeing places of miracles. And so in source number five, I'll read the English over here. The sages taught, one who sees the crossings of the Red Sea, where Israel crossed, and the crossings of the Jordan, and the rock upon which Moses sat when Joshua waged war against Amalek, and Lot's wife. So if you see Lot's wife, presumably you'll see some pillar of salt, and say, whoa, there's a miracle, I have to make a blessing. And the wall of Jericho that was swallowed up in its place. On all of these miracles, one must give thanks and offer praise before God. The Talmud goes on to question, how can you make a blessing over the Lot's wife? Doesn't that, she died, it's tragic. So they modify what blessing to say for her in the ongoing discussion. But for our purposes, the premise of this Talmudic passage is Lot's wife was a person and actually turned into salt. So they're reading the Pasuk, going back to four, that she looked behind her, and she became a pillar of salt. So the supernaturalist approach has no problem reading the verse. That seems to be a very smooth reading. Those who want to take more naturalistic approaches have two different angles into this, and, and, and they're both represented in our classical interpretation. Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, who was one of the Baleato Safot, who lived in, in the 13th century, excuse me, in the 12th century, and also Radak, who lived in the 13th century, Rabbi David Kimchi, uh, they both understand the verse like this, Vatabet his wife turned from behind him, Lot's wife looked back, she didn't stop being made up of the same elements that were made up. She was still a human being, and now she was a dead human being because she was overtaken by the fire and brimstone that was bombarding the city. In other words, the delay killed her by remain, lingering behind in Sodom. She simply was killed by whatever other people of Sodom were killed. And elsewhere in Tanakh, the term melach is used, salt is used as one of the ingredients of that destruction. So from that perspective, there's nothing supernatural happening to Mrs. Lot. She simply was killed by the stuff that was killing everybody else in the city of Sodom. That's that approach. A more extreme approach is taken by Ralbag and a few others as well. They have to make a syntactical leapfrog. Even that's not good enough for Ralbag. So Ralbag comes up like this. The subject of the previous sentence was the cities, right? That God was over overthrowing the cities of Sodom and Amorah. So when it says in Kavav in 26, and Mrs. Lot looked behind her, it means Mrs. Lot looked behind her and she, the city, had turned into a pillar of salt. The Vatihi does not modify Mrs. Lot, even though she was the immediately preceding subject, but rather it refers to the fact that the cities had become salt. So in that reading, by the way, fun, fun possibility, you could read the Pasuk this way and say that Mrs. Lot actually survived altogether. She saw that the cities were destroyed, but nothing happened to her. Well, Bag doesn't like that. He says that, no, she was then overthrown by whatever was killing off the people of Sodom. But that Pasuk doesn't say it. So we have three possibilities. The supernatural approach is Mrs. Lot turned into a pillar of salt. That's the view of the Talmud. That's the view of Rashi and many others also. Those looking for a more naturalistic approach have at least a somewhat fair way to read it. Either 
means she was overtaken by the bombardment. Or I think a more strange reading of that overall bag is that she turned behind her and behold, she saw that the city had turned into salt. There's just some, a good exercise in whatever you thought about miracles before has a direct impact on how you read the pasuk. You're not reading the pasuk and looking outward here. You had an idea of what a miracle should be. And that's simply going to affect how you read these words. Okay. Another example, it's harder to read the words any other way, but that's going to push some of our more rationalistic commentators up against the wall. My personal favorite miracle, I'm sure it's yours too, is when the sun stopped in the middle of the sky in Yoshua's time. That's a really good one. Yoshua, just to give the context of the story, Joshua is the general of the Israelite army and the leader of the people at this time. They have just entered the land recently and they're conquering various cities. And chapter 10, which is where we are, uh, a five-city coalition of Canaanites attacks Yoshua. Or actually attacks Givon, and Givon comes to rescue Givon. So Givon is doing battle with five cities. Okay, Yoshua defeats them, and they start to run away. They're going to try to run away to go back to their walled cities. Yoshua does not want them to reach their walled cities, because then they will be free, and then Yoshua will have to go ahead and besiege these cities. Okay, so that's the setting of the story. So night is coming, or at least Yoshua thinks so. And so Yoshua prays for something really remarkable. So I'll read it in English, but you have the Hebrew as well. On that occasion, when the Lord routed the Amorites before the Israelites, Joshua addressed the Lord and said in the presence of the Israelites, Stand still, O sun, at Givon, O moon, in the valley of Ayalon. It sounds like he's asking the sun and the moon to stop moving. You know, for us, that would mean earth stop rotating, but in the biblical eye, uh, that the language that they would have spoken is the one that we still use, sunrise and sunset, they might have actually thought that that was really happening, and that's fine. But the issue is, and the sun stood still, and the moon halted, while a nation wreaked judgment on its foes. It sounds like it worked. The sun remained in the midday position, and the moon remained not in the sky, and therefore night did not fall. And that seems to have given Yoshua a lot of extra time to catch up with the fleeing Canaanites, much to the Canaanites' chagrin as it is written in the book of Yashar. Thus the sun halted in mid-heaven and did not press on to set for a whole day. Smoothest reading is that the sun stopped mid-sky mid for 24 hours. And that would be way more time than Yoshua would have bargained for if it's noon. Let's say sun sets today at 7 o'clock. Okay, so he has seven hours to catch fleeing Canaanites. Suddenly he gets 24 hours. That's way better. And he was able to catch the Canaanites. For the Lord fought for Israel, neither before nor since has there ever been such a day when the Lord acted on words spoken by a man. So the plain reading of the text is what it is. The plain reading of the text is the sun and moon stopped in their cycles, presumably for a full 24 hours, a whole day. And that gave Yeshua ample time to capture the fleeing Canaanites. That's fantastic. So the Zut camp, those who think that God is directly intervening, uh, Okay, God can do this. Yes, it's unusual. Even the text recognizes that this was truly above and beyond, even by divine standards, but that's what it is. What about Rambam and Ralbag? How are they going to explain this one naturalistically? The sun doesn't stop in its orbit, and in our language, the earth doesn't stop rotating, and honestly, if it did, I wouldn't want to be standing on it at that moment. Right, so the question is, what happened according to them? And the answer is, I, I like this one, absolutely nothing. Nothing happened on that day. If you were in Tel Aviv and the sun was supposed to stop set at seven o'clock, it would have still set at seven o'clock. You would never have known that anything unusual happened at all. 
And that goes for people in Australia too, for that matter. The sun just kept marching right on through the sky or in our language, the earth kept right on rotating and nothing at all happened. How do they explain this story? Basically, it's a psychological principle. They thought that it was impossible to catch their enemies. This is Raul Bagh's view. Raul Bagh thinks that Yoshua believed in his mind that it was physically impossible that they would ever capture the Canaanites, but they did. It's a miracle. We caught the Canaanites. It's as though the sun stopped moving, but nothing really happened. Yoshua simply remarkably overtook the Canaanites that he thought he never would catch otherwise. So it felt like the sun must have stopped in the middle of the sky, but nothing at all happened. According to Rambam, the, it, it just appeared to the people as though it was the longest daylight of the year. Again, it was a psychological rather than a physical miracle. Yoshua thought it was impossible to catch the Canaanites, but then he caught them all before the sunset. So it was as though the sun never set, but nothing really happened. Now, Torah Barbanel, who takes the story at its literal world, word, Donat Nuskaka Barbanel, he was a great philosopher too, but he didn't like it when philosophy overrode the biblical text. And in this case, he thinks that Rambam and Ralbag are way over the line here. The whole point of the story is that God did something that he's never, he's never listened to a person before. It sounds like something very major happened. And to say that nothing at all happened other than Yoshua wasn't expecting to catch them, but he caught them, uh, that's a bit much for him. So he gets very, very, very upset. And he tends to write long tirades at moments like these. And sure, sure enough, he does. So if you like reading long tirades in simple Hebrew, this is your moment. Read a Barbanel. He, he launches a major attack against the philosophical position. The truth is, nowadays, we've come up with alternative readings that would help Rambam and Ralbag more, where something major did happen, but within the laws of nature. A simple way of doing it is a scholar named George Mendenhall suggests that there was simply a very violent hailstorm with a thick cloud cover. So you, we've all been in this. It's daylight, and suddenly it looks like it's, it's so dark, you think it's almost nightfall. You know it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but my, oh, my, it looks like it's nighttime. Let's say you're not wearing a watch and you're on a battlefront and this is happening. Okay, it feels like night is about to fall. So Yoshua says, okay, I can't have nightfall. I need to catch these guys. They prayed for a miracle. There was a violent hailstorm, which bewildered the Canaanites. And then five minutes later, it was 3.05 or whatever. Okay, so it's still daytime and Yoshua, but, but the Canaanites are bewildered and I gave Yoshua an extra advantage to capture them. In which case, it was a very well-timed act of nature that's unusual, and it helped. So that would fit the criteria of this narrative, right? You know, we don't need to bend the laws of nature. The sun really was still in the middle of the sky. Under normal circumstances, Yeshua may not have captured the enemy, but this really, really, really did help. But of course, the sun kept on moving across the sky because the earth kept rotating. Okay, so that's one hypothesis. My personal favorite, I'm not voting for it, but it's the one I like the most, is that there was a solar eclipse. And if you really want to narrow it down, the previous favorite 50 years ago when people were writing articles about it, mark your calendars here, it was on September 30th, 1131 BCE at 1240 PM based on NASA calculations. Pretty cool, right? But there was a major eclipse over Israel at that time, September 30th, 1131 BCE at 1240 PM. So the scenario goes like this. There was a major earth, uh, major, not earthquake, major solar eclipse over Israel then according to NASA calculations. 
lasted for about four minutes, which is incredibly long for a solar eclipse. So one scholar named John Sawyer, who wrote an article about it, he quotes much more recent scientists who in, experienced total solar eclipses. And it, I, don't, I, I, I would love to be in one of the, I've been in partial eclipses, they're cool too, uh, but you don't get the psychological effect. We're talking about total to the point where stars are coming out and it's really mamash, it looks like it's nighttime. So there was, a, there was one in a place in Sudan in 1860 where a couple of French scientists were there and they reported that the solar eclipse lasted for two hours. I think that's what dur means, even though I don't speak French. But in the meantime, it lasted for two hours. In reality, this eclipse lasted, ride with this one, folks, one minute and 50 seconds. But it felt way longer. There was another total eclipse that happened in England, such good for a Khaburashi, or I suppose, uh, but it's cool anyway, uh, where some people reported an eclipse in 1927 in England, where it seemed like half of an hour. That eclipse lasted, ready for this, 25 seconds. I just think that's psychologically so very cool, regardless of whether this is Shritoshal Mikra in our thing. So John Sawyer said, if you have a four minute eclipse, I could feel like it's going on for many hours. But then when the eclipse stops, guess what? It's just 1244. The sun is still in the middle of the sky. So you might think that night is falling, stars are coming out. Yoshua prays to Hashem, I need more daylight. And then after what seems like an eternity, the sun is suddenly smack in the middle of the sky. And it's 1244. You still have plenty of hours to go catch some Canaanites. In which case, again, something major happened with perfect timing that impacted on the outcome of the battle. That Yoshua ben Nun gained more time. He didn't gain any time, but he had more time than he thought to overcome the Canaanites. But something happened. It's not just that he thought it was impossible and then it turns out that he caught them. Something really did happen within the laws of nature. I'm not suggesting that that is what happened, although it certainly could be. What I am suggesting is that the view of the philosophers, that God tends to work within the laws of nature, and that a miracle in Tanakh is something that is a big event that is perfectly timed with prophetic input, well, that's this. You would be able to read the text in a fair manner this way. I don't know that Raul Bagh's way of saying, Yeshua thought it was impossible, but it turns out that he caught them, really matches this text at all, where it says that, wow, this was a great miracle. God never listened to a person before like this. That's irrelevant if it was just a psychological reality. Okay, that's another example. Third example, I, I love all those science ex experiments I get to do with my kids when I'm giving them a bath about what things float and what things sink. So at some, I mean, I don't really use an ax because that would be a terrible thing to give to children in a bathtub for so many reasons, but they would know enough to know by now, I hope, that if you have a wooden ax handle and a, an iron ax head, the iron would sink and the wood would float. Okay. I hope they know that. I better ask them afterwards just to confirm and maybe I'll take a mini ax and put it in the tub later. But in the meantime, uh, for our purposes now, there is such a story in Tanakh where, this, where the reverse happened. There's a story of the great prophet Elisha in two kings. The stories of Eliyahu and Elisha in general or Elijah and Elisha are famed for having a lot more supernatural activity than average, even by prophetic standards. They're wonder workers. They really do amazing things, and with God's help, of course. And so one such story involves, in chapter 6, involves the fact that Elisha had a group of followers. Uh, Tanakh refers to these people as B'nai Hanavim. These are people who are students of the prophets. Perhaps some of them will graduate one day, if God wishes, and make them into prophets. But for the time being, they're disciples. And they were dirt poor. 
These are people who left their families, didn't have a real job, and hung with the prophet all day. So one such individual, poor fellow, borrowed an axe from somebody and was using it to chop wood. And in the course of one of the chops, I guess, I guess they didn't use proper crazy glue, whatever they used back then. And the axe handle got detached from the head. The head flew off and fell into some water, and it sunk. So the poor fellow is distraught because it was a borrowed axe, and he has no money to repay the owner. That's the setting of this story, source seven. As one of them was felling a trunk, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried aloud, alas, master, it was a borrowed one. Oh, no, never going to be able to repay the owner. Where did it fall, asked the man of God, referring to Elisha. He showed him the spot. He cut off a stick, and he threw it in, and it made the axe head float. Pick it up, he said, and so he reached out and took it. Okay, the team has a field day here. This is great. Wow, wood sunk and iron floated. Couldn't ask for a better God getting involved and intervening and bending the laws of nature than here. This is a really good one. And that seems to be the point of the story, and that's certainly how many of our commentaries take the story. So poor Ral Bagh, what's he going to do? He doesn't want God to bend the laws of nature, but yet Ral Bagh, who himself was a great scientist, besides being a great philosopher, he knows that wood floats and iron sinks. So how in the world is he going to explain this story? Well, the whole premise of the story seems to be, okay, God made these things do the opposite of what they normally do to help this poor student of the prophet out. And it worked. Okay, so Al-Bagh says like this, paraphrase, but not by much, this was the greatest throw in the history of humanity. He basically cut a stick of wood, figured out the dimensions of the hole, threw it in there with all his might. It was a perfect throw. It sunk down just by the force of the throw, got into the hole where the ax head was, and the force of all of that pushed the thing up to the surface, and they were able to grab it before anything sunk again. So this is Ral Bagh taxed to the extreme. Right? I, I love these examples of the sun stopping in the middle of the sky, and even better, this one, because Ral Bagh is really pushed against a wall. Many of the stories, you really could do what Ral Bagh does, and very comfortably. But here he seems to be forcing the issue to such an extreme because he simply doesn't want to say that God did that God actively intervened on behalf of a private individual, no matter how righteous, to help him save a few bucks on, an, on a replacement axe head. So again, a Barbanel just goes bananas. A Barbanel who lives later picks on Ralbag here and says, this is a distortion of the text. How could you possibly say that this was simply a great throw? The whole point is this was a miracle in the conventional way that we understand miracles, namely that God bent the laws of nature to help this fellow out. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really a great example. I'm using these extreme cases because that helps us then move back toward uh, more interesting examples where you really could see both sides. One example of that is the two times in all history where, that we know about where people who were dead came back to life via miracle. And they're both in the stories of Elisha and Eliyahu before him. Here are two biblical stories where you have a child in both cases who suddenly is dead. And the prophets get involved, they pray to God, and then resuscitates the child. The children come back to life. So here's one of them in source eight, with Eli, this is with Eliyahu, the master. After a while, the son of the mistress of the house fell sick, and his illness grew worse until he had no breath left in him. She said to Elijah, what harm have I done you, O man of God, that you should come here and recall my sin and cause the death of my son? It's very clear that the boy is dead. Give me the boy, he said to her, and taking her, her, him from her arms, he carried him to the upper chamber where he was staying and laid him down on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, my God, will you bring calamity upon this widow whose guest I am and let her son die? 
please don't let this boy die. Then he stretched out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord saying, oh Lord, my God, let this child's life return to his body, meaning he's dead. Let him come back to life. The Lord heard Elijah's plea. The child's life returned to his body and he revived. Great. This is a case of in, in real time, of the story, that there was a boy who was dead. Eliyahu realized he was dead. The mother realized he was dead. And God worked a miracle, because only God can do this, and brought the child back to life. That is the simple reading of the story. And a similar story happens with Elisha, the successor prophet to Eliyahu. We'll read this in Source 9. Suddenly he cried to his father, referring to a child who had come into this world unexpectedly via prophetic prediction, but no supernatural event there. Oh, my head, my head, he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. He picked him up and brought him to his mother. And the child sat on her lap until noon and he died. Okay, so he's dead. Elisha came into the house and there was the boy laid out dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he mounted the bed and placed himself over the child. He placed his mouth on its mouth and his eyes on its eyes and his hands on its hands, and he bent over it. And the body of the child became warm. He stepped down, walked once up and down the room, mounted and bent over him. Thereupon the boy sneezed seven times and the boy opened his eyes. Sure enough, he came back to life too. So the dominant view of our classical interpreters is that these are two exceptional cases where God intervened and brought somebody who was dead back to the living, actually back to life and functioning as a living person. Rambam here doesn't accept a naturalistic reading. He cannot see this text read any other way. He says that, yeah, God actually did that. He's certainly able to. Rambam never has an issue with God's ability, but he tries his best to interpret any story where possible according to the laws of nature. But bringing a child back to life is not natural. <laughs> you can't do that. Rambam does quote rabbis from Andalusia, who thought that this is what we would think of as a Hatzalah call. The children in both of these stories were comatose. Perhaps you couldn't perceive their breath, but they were clinically alive. And the Hatzalah people, in this case, Eliyahu Hanavi and Elisha Hanavi, showed up and using incredibly advanced techniques called CPR, revived these seemingly lifeless children. In other words, there were those rabbis in Spain who were not satisfied saying that this is a supernatural event that occurred twice here, but rather that they actually simply used an art that is a much more common art to use today. Many more people are aware of how to do this now, including one of my brothers-in-law. Uh, but, but all the same, uh, nothing supernatural happened. It was simply incredible. To any normal bystander, certainly 30, you know, 3,000 years ago, we would have thought a dead child came back to life, but no dead child came back to life. A comatose or a lifeless-looking child came back to life. Rambam himself rejects this reading, however. He does not think that that is a fair reading of the text. He thinks in these two instances, God really did bring a dead child back to life, and Radak uh, agrees with him. He doesn't think that there's any other good way to read the story. So here's an example of the two of the great rationalist interpreters saying, look, there are moments where you just have to say that God really did act supernaturally, because God can, which is that we prefer, the rationalists prefer not to learn it that way. Okay, one, bet, one last example, and that's the banner example. So what's up with the plagues anyway, the plagues of Egypt? So here you understand that if you read the Torah, you really could read them both ways comfortably. You could say that God turned water into blood and then 
went and a lot of frogs just jumped out of the Nile River, even though they were not previously there, and so on through the plagues. But you could just as easily say nothing supernatural happened at all. Water turning to blood would be blood light. It didn't, it didn't change its nature. It's still water. It's just filled with red sediment, which was washed in from Ethiopia. Some of the tributaries to the Nile River have red sediment. Okay, so an unusually high amount of that washed in. And that's what happened today. And then all the other things are just, okay, what do you want? There were a lot of frogs. They came out of the river at once. There's nothing supernatural about that. Lice, et cetera, all the way down the line. You don't have to learn any of the first nine plagues as supernatural occurrences. Locusts is locusts, a hailstorm is a hailstorm. What would make it miraculous according to that camp was, again, prophetic anticipation. God told Moshe that these things would happen. They were huge. They were very unusually large plagues. And they were very well-timed. Right? They, they came at this moment in rapid succession so that the Israelites would be redeemed from Egypt. So it all worked out fine, but the laws of nature were not necessarily bent. In 1957, a scholar, a Dutch scholar named Greta Hort, put together her hypothesis of how this all worked. So she gave her naturalistic explanation, but that's perfectly in sync with many of our early interpreters who also learned the story this way, that it's naturalistic. Greta Hort posited the following. She did the red sediment thing, that you know, a lot of water washed in from Ethiopia, and, and not only was it red, but it came with a lot of bacteria. Okay, so that bacteria kills all the fish, which is why the fish died. But you understand that the Egyptians weren't phased by the plague. They knew exactly what to do, right? When there was the plague of blood, they didn't say, oh, no, we're all going to die because there's no fresh water anywhere. What they did is they just dug around the river and found water. They knew exactly how to handle this in the Torah itself. So that's what they did. Okay, so they didn't drink the sediment because you can't. They simply dug freshwater springs underground. Okay. So the fish are now dead, the water is red and not drinkable for seven days. Then meanwhile, the sediment washes away, plague is done. But of course, while this is going on, the, the water now stinks because there's billions of dead fish in there, that drives out the frogs. But Nebuch, the frogs also are afflicted with the same bacterial infection that killed the fish. So they all drop dead. Okay, so now you have all these frog carcasses all over Egypt. Okay, great. That's going to attract a lot of lice or mosquitoes. So here they come. And so there's an astronomically high breeding ground potential for, for, these, for these mosquitoes or, or lice, whatever they were. Okay, we then move on to Arov. The fourth plague was Arov, and there's a debate already in the Chazal and later commentary. Arov just means a swarms. Okay, swarms of what? So I know the answer to this question because I've invested a lot of money in plague kits for my kids. So the plague kits come with like finger puppets. We have the masks. We have a whole bunch of different plague kits, actually. And every single one of these plague kits has a lion for the arrow or some depiction of a lion. So all of these plague kits, kits follow the view that's already in, in Midrashim that arrow are swarms of big wild beasts, large animals that can be dangerous. Okay. But there are other views, including swarms of flies or other insects like wasps or Hornets, whatever other insects live in, stinging insects that lived in that part of the world. And that makes a lot more sense because they actually entered the houses. But all the same, it doesn't have to be correct. So if, if I had to make a plague kit, I probably would go for the flies or the insects anyhow. Uh, but in the meantime, Greta Hort thinks that they might be some insect that lives in that region called the stable fly. The stable fly 
doesn't like Mediterranean climate, which is where Goshen was, which is where the Israelites lived, but they would have been thrilled in the tropical climate of the Nile Delta. So they would have been chomping away the Egyptians living around the Nile Delta, but they would leave the Israelites in Goshen alone. Sable flies can, can, can like many insects, uh, can transmit diseases such as anthrax. Okay, so good news for everybody. So that transmission gives cattle disease to the cattle and gives boils to the people. Okay, so there you go. So here you have all these plagues happening in the Nile Delta area as a result of these flies, uh, but it, Goshen is spared of all these things. Then there's a hailstorm. Okay, a hailstorm is a hailstorm. So Greta Horges argues that thunderstorms originating in Upper Egypt may be trapped in the Nile Valley and not make it over to Goshen. So it's very reasonable that you would have a hailstorm that would devastate what we think of as Egypt in our story, but leave the Israelites alone. Same thing with locust patterns. And so she just makes a scientific argument that some of these pl plagues may be causal. And even if they're not causal, they really can very well be explained as Nile Delta problems, but not Goshen problems. Well, after hailstorm and, and locusts, it's not surprising that you would have the plague of darkness, which in all likelihood was a Hamsin, where there would be a huge, terrible sandstorm that was thick, as the Torah describes it, where you would have three days where the, the Egyptians can't even leave their homes. It's not just that it's dark, it's that it was a thick, darkness, which kept people trapped inside. Not everybody agrees with Greta Hort that it has to be a causal chain the way that she describes it, but all the same, this all would work very well within the naturalistic camp of our classical interpreters, that here you have a plausible interpretation that completely matches the text of the Torah. One interpreter who managed to hedge both views very, very well, and this is really, I think, something to take to heart as we, as we wind down and we'll leave it open for Q&A for the remainder of the time, is that of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who just commemorated his 30th nachala, his 30th anniversary of his death. I'm part of the first generation of students of Yeshiva University. I never even saw him. He was still alive when I started Yeshiva University, but he was already you know, um, bedridden, more or less with Parkinson's. He was already in Boston full time. He did not come to Yeshiva University anymore. And so I never got to hear him or had the, certainly never had the privilege of being in his or on a regular basis. So I learned from his students. I'm very grateful that over the last 30 years, there have been many, many, many books of his writings published by his students who have notebooks, recordings, all kinds of other stuff that they used. That's really great. But suddenly people like us who never had the privilege of hearing Rabbi Soloveitchik live, at least get a glimmer of that teaching by students who were leading students of his, who at least are pretty reliable as these things go. So in one such book, it's called The Emergence of Ethical Man, which originally was lectures that have since been uh, adapted and transmitted in writing. Uh, in The Emergence of Ethical Man, Rabbi Soloveitchik notices that the plagues in Egypt are not presented with any, anything supernatural with them. So he says that that was deliberate. He says that the whole point that Tanakh is trying to teach is acts of God should be viewed as miracles. It doesn't matter if God is using the laws of nature or bending the laws of nature. We should view everything in God's creation as miraculous. He says that a biblical miracle is simply the correspondence of the natural order and history. So if a natural event occurs that helps history along in some way, that is a miracle. So the plagues led to the exodus. Okay, that's a miracle. Whenever, and here's the quotation from the book, whenever history is transfigured under the impact of cosmic dynamics, we encounter a miracle. Rabbi Soloveitchik doesn't think that the Torah promotes a supernatural ideology at all. He thinks that the Torah typically does speak in very naturalistic terms, because the whole point is, 
If God is acting in history, that's a miracle regardless of the means. Whether it's nature or supernatural, it ends up being exactly the same thing. And that, I think, is really the purpose of the shiur and what makes it meaningful for me is the religious encounter with Tanakh, where God is impressive through miracles, but we know that there's a huge debate over what exactly a miracle is. So taking the debate to heart, you realize that both ways are coming to the same conclusion. God acted in history, and we celebrate God as the master of the universe who acted in history, whether through the laws of nature with an unusual event or whether God actually did bend the laws of nature. And so the debate ends up leading us to exactly the same road, and I appreciate how Rabbi Soloveitchik helps us navigate that last piece of the puzzle. On that happy note, I thank the Chabura for inviting me in the first place, and I see that Robert Sassoon asked a question a very long time ago. So I'll start with you, and then we'll turn it over for further Q&A for the remainder of the time. In the case of Mrs. Lote, how does the Ralbag deal with falling of fire and brimstone? Does he claim that this is a natural occurrence? The answer is yes, he does. Uh, it seems, Ralbag writes sort of cryptically here, but it does seem like he thinks that what happened for the most part is an earthquake, a very major earthquake accompanied by lightning. So the earthquake is coming from below, that would be terribly destructive, and the lightning would set off minerals and, and create fire. So Ralbag seems to have some version of that. And yes, he does think it, again, it's a huge, unusual, but very natural occurrence. And by the way, that really might be the Pshuto Shal Mikra over there. Okay, now we turn it over to everybody else. If anyone has any questions, they can raise their hands or un just unmute. Raise your hand, unmute, or shoot a text, and then I can address it, whatever you're most comfortable with. I have a question, which is, um, so according to the, the, for example, the interpretation, uh, like that Salah call, where basically he comes in and then the Navi is uh, thus uh, advanced, you know, CPR and brings this, this kid back to life. What essentially you have is a guy who comes in and then he, he claims that he's doing super work, super, supernatural work, when he, meaning they all think he's doing supernatural work and he's not correcting them. Right. I don't think he's doing it as a matter of deceit, though. I mean, one hopes not anyway. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to be the point of it. The point is that God is behind it, and God would still be deemed behind it, even in the eyes of the prophet, by the way. I don't think that the prophet is thinking that he's a Hatzalah worker who's just trained with some local EMT organization, and now he's just fooling this poor widow or this poor married woman in the Shunanit case. Uh, I, I don't think that that's what's going on at all. I think that they, as they're praying even to God for help in this one. But the issue is, was the child really dead? I imagine that Elisha and Eliyahu think that the child is dead also, but they're doing techniques that end up working in conjunction with the divine prayer. I think that that's how they see it themselves. I don't think that it's meant as an act of deception. Any more than I don't think that Elisha thinks that he's just an amazing Olympic javelin thrower uh, with the accent, which is a really cool interpretation, even though it does seem to push, push the limits a bit. And according to the to the... And in Chazal say, for example, in Megillah, that there's a there's a clear distinction between the Nisim that occurred before Esther and then after Esther sort of marks this era of no Nisim. But it still is Nisim, meaning because we read we all read the Megillah and we're like, look, look at how all these random events sort of play out with the direction of Hashem. But for the person who but for the rationalists, you know, who try to explain the miracles more within the naturalistic worldview, that according to them is all the Nisim. So what's the distinction? Uh, you, you're probably right. I mean, the big distinction, actually, at least Rambam has an answer for you, is, is prophecy. 
But he says that one of the definitions of a miracle in Tanakh is that Hashem told the prophet that this will happen. So since prophecy stopped, so it's not a miracle in the same way. But in terms of the event, you're right. Like certainly Raul Bagh's way, where he doesn't seem to be as insistent on the prophetic point, he would say, I disagree with that. That the Masechet Megillah is taking for granted that the miracles are the dzd version. And there are many Talmudic passages. I cannot believe that Raul Bagh spent the time reinterpreting all of it. And he would just say, this is a view that's widespread in the Talmud and widespread in later rabbinic literature. And I disagree with it. And so I imagine that that's simply what he would do. Which his philosophy doesn't allow him to adopt that view. Okay, anyone else? I'll give you a good example, you know, within the, you know, before and after. The first person ever to ask, hey, how come things don't happen like the biblical period anymore was the Shofet named Gid'on. Where I, 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 you know, I make, I make, I use my imagination. I mean, here, the, the Exodus from Egypt is certainly a very well-talked-about story from the very beginning, and the Torah wants us to talk about it. So you imagine generation after generation transmitted the story, and Gid'on certainly knew it, and said, okay, great. God was with us, but where is God now? How come God isn't doing stuff like this at the moment? We're being oppressed by Midianim. We're starving over here because they're oppressing us. Where's God? So God wants to prove to Gideon that God is still with us and he still does amazing things. So the way that he does it is he says, okay, Gideon, get an army together. So he does too many people, 32,000 men. Very brave men indeed. God says, no, 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 I want this to be really impressive. 32,000 is too many. Get rid of them. So, he's, so he asks, who's afraid? 22,000 people say, I am, and they all, they all get dismissed immediately. 10,000 left. God says, nope, still too many. Uh, what are we going to do? So they go to the water. They lapse, you know, 9,700 of them do what I would have done, which is you get on your knees and you lap out of your hand. 300 of them stood vigilant and drank. God said, okay, I want these 300 guys. There's a huge debate whether there's, what the rationale of that distinction is. But at, what I care about for today is now there's just 300 men against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. So the whole point is Gidon wins with this tiny few. Wow, this is a great miracle. Right? That's the whole point. Okay. Professor Yehuda Elitzur, who wrote the important commentary, the Datnikra Orthodox commentary on Sefer Shofetim, explains exactly what happened in this battle. There are 300 guys, right? We know that. You and I know that. And Gidon knows that. But the Midianim have surveillance. They saw Gidon gathering a huge army together. These 300 guys who come, come in the middle of the night. They break up into three units. I have to remember to have my hands on the screen. Okay. And they have shofars and they have bonfire, you know, torches and they have empty pottery jars. None of them are holding, none of them is holding a weapon. And then they come charging down and making a lot of noise and holding their bonfires and blowing the shofars and smashing these jugs. So the Midianim all look, leap up. It's midnight or whatever. It's terribly dark. And they freak out and they all grab their sword and start swinging wildly because uh, army discipline isn't their specialty when they're woken up in the middle of the night. So they end up killing one another. And the Israelites could just stand on the hills and watch this all happen. It's a brilliant, non-miraculous strategy. Right? Nothing supernatural here happened at all. It's just a great move, a really great move. And of course, the Midianim think that each one of these guys with the torch is leading a troop of 100 guys it, with, with swords or other weapons. They don't realize, no, there's nobody behind them. 
So I think it's a brilliant explanation that actually really might be right. It's certainly a fair way to read the story. Uh, but in no way is that explanation meant to take away from the fact that you and I are supposed to walk away from this story saying, what a miracle. 300 defeated 135,000. This is the hand of God. Ever God himself wanted to demonstrate in the narrative. There's no deception. It's, it's really just a, a, it's a matter of religious perception, seeing God's hand in the world and in events, which I think is really the important lesson that Tanakh is trying to teach us, that rationalists and non-rationalists alike can you know, savor God's actions in all of these stories the same way. And, and, and even, and, but they should just need to understand one another and understand that these are two uh, venerable positions on the books. That's why I like Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi, who keeps his, his measure of independence and allows, it allows him to actually read the words and say, okay, what are the fair ways of reading all of the words? Okay, yes. I have time for one or two more comments or questions. I was just wondering, like in Halakha, we also see dumbfoundness sometimes about like, what if Shabbat has come in, but then you see light again. There's also this idea of, oh, darkness came in and then, you know, you know, I think there's also something about if you're on a camel and it's Chag or something and you shift time zones, I don't know how that can actually happen, that you can actually, you go ahead of the times it was probably explained through some natural phenomena of darkness. Is that also, I mean, obviously it's not the same, we're not talking about miracles, but it just got me thinking that even the rabbis weren't fully aware, especially in the times of Talmud of like, uh, of these natural occurrences that could, you know, mislead someone. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a really wonderful tishuva by Rav Chaim David Halevi, who was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Tel Aviv, Yafo, he died in 1998, and he, he held that post pretty much until his death. So he, somebody asked him a question. You know, the Talmud doesn't have a blessing for eclipses, but it does have blessings for so many natural wonders. So why shouldn't we make a bracha for eclipses? They're a natural wonder. You can predict them. Rabbi Halevi said, look, the rabbis of the Talmud thought that it was a sign of divine wrath and displeasure. There are, tal- there are passages like that. The solar eclipse is displeasure with the world. The lunar eclipse is displeasure with us, the Jews. And so obviously they wouldn't codify a blessing for natural wonder. They didn't see it at all. They saw Hashem is angry at somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now that we know that, it, that here you have a halakhic question. So Rabbi Halevi acknowledges that it is a natural wonder. He, he didn't pretend that no, if the sages say it's divine displeasure, that means God is angry, even if you could predict the moment of anger and project back to September 30th, 1131 BCE at 12.40 p.m. based on your calculations, he understood that it is a natural wonder. He just says that we're not allowed to codify new blessings after the Talmud. He operates with a different halachic principle. Mm-hmm. So he says mm-hmm. what you could do is recite a parak of Tehillim or other psukim that bless God. That way at least you're reciting verses, but you shouldn't codify a new blessing or even use an existing blessing for something that the sages of the Talmud did not. He's simply following the classic, you know, halakhic principle of no post-Talmudic blessing. So you're absolutely right. Uh, there's there's no acknowledgement that the Talmud had the final word on science, nor should they. Mm-hmm. When you go to a doctor today, you should follow contemporary science and not Talmudic medical advice, even if sometimes that's wisdom really way beyond their, their time. And that is, ah, uh, what teshiva is that, please? I, I, the answer is I certainly don't remember offhand. How about that? Um, hold on. 
So you wouldn't be able to say Maaseh Vereshit or something like that? You wouldn't be able to... not to say Oseh Maaseh Vereshit. Really? There's a, that's what I'm saying. Even a known blessing... Oh, man. Um, but I, I, it, it's, it just seems like that was such a general blessing for any wonder. So... Oh, but because they wouldn't do it back then for that. Okay, I see. If you give me one more minute, and then we'll close this year. I know we're also out of time. Oh, man. I think I have some good news for you. This is from an article I wrote about this a long time ago. So therefore, I was able to find it so fast. It's a I'm just giving you the reference at the end of this right now. I'm typing that in. Selecha Rav 5-7. Okay. Now, I, I will send it. Don't worry. And there it is. That's just what I wrote in this article a while ago. And, and, so, and then I put the source at the very end. But I think that's really cool. I think it was a wonderful way of trying to bridge exactly your question with the halachic canons and not say, he didn't want to say this Talmud is wrong, but he, under, he acknowledged that it eclipses something which is certainly a predictable and observable phenomenon, but Chazal simply did not recognize that because it doesn't happen on some regular occurrence. On that incredibly happy note, uh, I want to thank the Chabura again for having me and thank all of you for taking time out of your busy days or evenings, depending on where you happen to live at the moment. Uh, and I look forward to learning with you on Wednesday, same, same time, same station. But thank you so much and take care. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. That was everyone.